0: All right, so we are beginning a new novel, and um, uh, we are moving across the Atlantic Ocean back to our home, the United States of America. We have covered the French Revolution and all the ideologies that were swirling about in those days, ideologies of Rousseau, originally Plato, And we've covered the scientific and industrial revolutions that took place in that time period. And we discussed all of those things through the lens of Dr. Frankenstein. So you've learned a lot, I think. But, of course, as you know, the people in America, by and large, were related to the people in Europe. And there was a lot of cultural similarities. And so the ideologies that were swirling about in 18th and 19th century Europe made their way across the Atlantic to the United States of America as well, right? Now, you'll also remember that before we traveled to Europe to discuss the revolution, we we spoke about the founding of America, we talked about the Articles of Confederation and the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, and we read the autobiography of Benjamin Franklin. And we said that Benjamin Franklin is a good case study for how America was changing, especially in the north. That's not something we talked about too much. But Benjamin Franklin was from what state? Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, Philadelphia. That was his state. This new book that we are going to be covering, The Killer Angels, is the Battle of Gettysburg. Guess what state that's in? Pennsylvania. That's right. Pennsylvania. The capital, of course, is Philadelphia. So remember we said that Benjamin Franklin was raised by Presbyterian parents, but he, he began to drift slowly towards Unitarianism and Deism, although he wasn't a classic Deist. He still believed in providence. He was an amalgamation. He was a hybrid. And we saw that was also true of Thomas Jefferson. Some of the secular Enlightenment ideas of Europe were beginning to infiltrate the elite circles of the Northeast, of colleges like Harvard and Yale. And so this these ideologies coming here to America, especially in the North, um, exacerbated the tensions between the North and the South that had been there since the Declaration of Independence. You see the state of Virginia and many of the people in Virginia were loyal to the king. They were royalists And um, loyalists. Whereas those of New England who had Puritan grandfathers, they were loyal to whom? The states. They wanted to declare independence, but those of Virginia, they were very loyal to the king. There's a funny story of a, a Virginian politician who used to study very carefully the king. And the, the kings of England, if they begin to pronounce a word a different way, he would instruct his people to start pronouncing the word that way. They really wanted to be loyal Englishmen in Virginia. So for a long time, there was rivalry and hatred. And, and then the ideologies of Europe began to swirl over here. And just things become quite a bit of a mess. And uh, in this book, I think, Killer Angels captures all these different philosophies and ideas in sort of a, a historical fiction novel. So it's, it's a more engaging way to discuss philosophical ideas. Understand? Mm-hmm. Um, for example, if we had to summarize the two main ideas in the world in the 17th and 18th and 19th centuries, the main two ideas is Christianity, Christendom versus the revolution. We've already talked about that. The revolution believes man is what? God, collective man especially. Man is inherently good. Those ideas come from Rousseau. They come from Plato. They're Western Greek philosophical ideas. But in the church, in Christianity, we believe man has fallen and needs a savior. So those two main ideas are really what has been at war since, honestly, since Rome was started persecuting the church in the first century, first and second century. And um, that's going to continue into the United States of America's history and into this time of the Civil War as well. <coughs> so um, <clears throat> the first book here, The Killer Angels, is, um, is entitled Killer Angels. Does anyone remember why? Jude? There's a quote from like Hamlet or something in the middle of the book. Yeah, a, a, a long-lost uh, literary quote from Shakespeare, right? Yeah. And and it is describing the nature of men. Yeah. And one man says men are angels. And it, and then the other says if men are angels, they're killer angels. No, that's the comment the, the guy's dad added. He added it afterward. He was like it's he, in the he book. He was quoting he was quoting a, play. A, a play from uh-huh. uh, Shakespeare to his dad. And his dad looked up and grinned and said, If men are angels, then they are killer angels. murder Murdering angels. There you go. And he went to school and talked about killer angels. And that's where the name of the book comes from. Yeah. You see, but the name of the book has to do with the nature of man. You see, right out of the gate, the name of the book is a philosophical idea. Is man good or is man evil? Mm-hmm. We're going to learn in the Civil War, if we didn't already learn from Genesis 1, man is sinful in their nature. They are glorious. They are created in the image of God. They are, quote, angels, not technically angels. You get the point. They're glorious. They're significant. They have meaning. They're powerful. But they're killer. They're sinful. And uh, in the Civil War, and especially the Battle of Gettysburg, is somewhere you can really dis- explore the depravity of man and the glory of man in both the North and the South. <clears throat> Make sense? <clears throat> all right, well, good. So a few facts about the author. You can just write these down real quickly. The name of the author is Michael Shara. And when he wrote the book, no one liked it. In fact, several publishers rejected it. Finally, a tiny little publisher, you don't have to write all this down, but a tiny little publisher accepted the novel. And then that tiny little publisher was bought by random house, which was a huge publisher. So somehow on the random house shelves, killer angels wound up. And it wasn't until after Michael Shaara died that it became a number one bestseller. He never even knew. He died not knowing that it would become globally famous. This inspired his son to continue writing um, two more books regarding the Civil War, Gods and Generals and um, The War Between the States. <clears throat> And so, I know Jude is reading God and Generals right now because he already finished Killer Angels. So, good. This book was made into a mini-series that would be fun to watch called Gettysburg. It's from 1993, so it's not too, you know, old-fashioned videography and whatnot. And um, it's a historical fiction book, and it covers the three days of the Battle of Gettysburg. The setting of the book is real. The events are real, the characters are real, most of them, uh, and the ideas of the characters and the words of the characters, though, are, are fiction, but they're historical fiction. He tries to put the, um, the thoughts and the feelings and the philosophies of the various soldiers and generals into their own mouths with their words. So, really good book. I had to read it when I was in officer candidate school they, uh, in, the, in the United States Army. was one of the books we had to read for for that um, school. So it's a great book, and I think you're really going to like it. The main characters, no need to write all of this down. I'm just saying real quick. It's the Confederate General Lee who leads the battle into Pennsylvania. This is kind of how Gettysburg started. General Lee um, had been winning a lot of defensive battles in the South, and he wanted to end the war quickly. If he could... If he could have a major victory in the north, perhaps the north would give up and they would come to treaty and the war would be over. General Lee did not want to see mass casualties on both sides of the Mason-Dixon line. And so he charged into uh, to Pennsylvania, his second incursion into the north, hoping to score a big victory and force a settled peace. <clears throat> but it backfired. It didn't work. They made some critical errors early on. Um, the Confederate General, uh, Confederate General Longstreet, his advisor seemed to be slow, um, not mentally, but he, he drug his heels a little bit and they didn't capture the high ground there in Gettysburg. So for the first time, General Lee did not have the, the best ground. And if you know anything about old-fashioned war, it's whoever has the high ground. It's whoever has the best position generally wins, all things being equal. Another character is Colonel Chamberlain for the Union. He was one of the heroes of the war, <clears throat> and uh, he held the left flank of the Confederate Army. Um, <clears throat> and then there's the fictional character, Private Kilrain. Have you all come across him yet in the reading? Yeah. And he's the assistant, and uh, he's the one that is sort of, uh, I, he verbalizes some of the philosophical um, you know, discussions that take place in the book. He kind of realizes and, and expresses how, how this war is exposing the evil uh, of the United States of America, which is precisely what it did. It really did. So the plot is um, pretty simple, and I already explained it to some. Lee invades the North, <clears throat> and I don't know if he expresses this in the book or not, but in reality, when the North invades, I mean, when the South invades Pennsylvania, um, General Lee was looking for good ground, and they accidentally, or providentially, I should say, bumped into the Northern Army. They didn't even know they were there, and the North didn't know they were there. They're just on march in the woods, and uh, there they are. So now you have these massive armies. I think it was like 20-something thousand on both sides, and they are stuck, strung out along these highways. So it's a race to find the most advantageous position right there. And they're right out of the outskirts of the town of Gettysburg. There's like a few shots fired and skirmishes, and then, and then bang, people are going to, uh, to, to fight for the uphill position. If you have the uphill position, you can understand, um, you can defend it more easily. It's hard to run uphill and fight, and it's hard to shoot uphill. Um, much easier to defend something downhill than to try to take it uphill. Especially when you're fighting with one shot and then a bayonet. You understand what I'm saying? And so the uh, north gets the most advantageous spots. They um, have uh, the high ground in the center, and that high ground is uh, all the high ground that they occupy is very close to each other, so they can send couriers and reinforcements easy. It was like two miles between the two sides of the, of the army, whereas the south gets the high ground all the way around. And they have six miles between their two different armies and positions. And so right out of the gate, you see that things aren't looking good. Um, there's a few. Uh, let's see. Um, there's a few ridges. One ridge is called seminary ridge. Another one is cemetery ridge. They, uh, the north takes one, the south takes the other, and uh, y'all know what I mean by a ridge. It's like a, a series of high points extended off in a, in a direction. There's the peach orchard where the two armies cla- clashed in a, in a real peach orchard. Many, di- many died there. There's the wheat field beyond the peach orchard, and you can imagine fighting with rifles in a wheat field. You can imagine a lot of people died. Um, <clears throat> And there's the high ground called Little Round Top, which uh, the North took. The South could have taken it. They drugged their heels. They didn't take it. And that probably was the reason why the North won, because they had captured Little Round Top. And then there's the area called Devil's Den, which was like a, a valley with boulders where people, where the North and the South were actually getting face-to-face in combat, because you can scoot through rocks, right, and then you're... Surprise, there's the enemy, and you're fighting with bayonets. So that was a very, very bloody um, battlefield. And then there's the copes, which is a clump of trees that Pickett's Charge took place in. And it was Pickett's Charge that failed and pretty much ended the war, ended that battle, and caused General Lee to have to flee south. <clears throat> and um, if the north would have uh, chased Lee's army into the south and and killed them all off, the, the war could have probably been done with there at Gettysburg, but the north didn't chase them into the south, and so the war went on for two more years. And this particular battle, about 50,000 people died. So it was one-third of the people there that day. 50,000 people strewn out in a field. You know how big that is? That's like a stadium of people, just dead all over the place. So it was a, a huge bloodbath. But it's probably the um, the most important, the most significant, and the most famous battle in on American soil um, since the dawning of the United States of America. So let's talk about the worldview a little bit, and we do need to take some some notes here because this is the most important thing, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, the North, the people in the North. It's hard to imagine this now, but maybe if you were born and raised in the South, you can imagine it. But the people in the North were different than the people in Virginia. Virginia, North Carolina, these are the powerful Southern states. Us folks down here in Louisiana, you know, um, Louisiana had a lot of money back in those days, but we're, uh, we're even more different than the people in Virginia. And we're a long way off from where the most of the battles are taking place, um, There were some big, huge battles that took place in Vicksburg, Mississippi, but um, way down here in the South, um, people were different than they were in Massachusetts and Pennsylvania. Right? Um, And by the way, did y'all know that Opelousas was the capital of the Confederacy for a period of time Um, because it wasn't too close to a river? That's right. Kind of crazy. So the Southerners, their ancestors, especially there in Virginia, were loyal to King George. Whereas the Northerners, their ancestors were the Puritans. But the Puritans made some terrible mistakes here in America. I, I I think if I had to summarize it is that they compromised with the rationalism of Western philosophy. That's how I would summarize it. And um, they became um, they became rationalistic. They they praised too highly Western philosophy and and um, the mind of man and the powers of man. And eventually, the Puritanism which controlled the North turned into Unitarianism. So the the worship of a Trinitarian God eventually. Turned into what you might think of as deism, right? And we've talked about that quite a bit already. In the South, though, <clears throat> their religion was a little bit different. It was more Anglican, more like um, old English religion. In the North, they 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 believed dancing was a sin. In the South, people loved the dance. In the South people were rowdy, right? A little more violent the the cultures were different some of the some of the some of the differences between like what you might think of as an uppity Northeasterner and a southern redneck you know a lot of those things were alive and well back then of course you have a lot of scotch irish in the south and you have a lot of english in the north you have there's just two different cultures this is, back in those days that's a long way away you know the distance between louisiana and massachusetts i mean it was like the distance between earth and the moon back then you had to sail all the way around the, the coast of Florida, all the way up the, the eastern seaboard. So it's two different um, peoples with two different ancestors. And uh, so by the time these, these, these um, two armies bump into each other in Gettysburg, they already hate each other. Like, they're already suspicious of each other. Um, they didn't just start hating each other on that day. right? There was already derogatory names that each side called those people. Okay, um, <clears throat> They had two different competing visions for what, w- what would make a good world. Um, you, as you know, the, the North, because they were Unitarian and Deistic, they were closer to the ideologies of Europe. They were more humanistic, more secular. The South was agrarian. Um, but many of the people in the South held to Darwinian, the, our Darwinian ideas that Europeans were more sophisticated and evolved than Africans. So this is complicated. It's really, really complicated. When, when someone says, why did the Civil War get fought? Was it over this reason or over this reason? Honestly, it's very, very complicated. And it's an evol- it evolved. It wasn't the same in the end as it was in the beginning. It's very complicated, but if we uh, in in this series, we're going to discuss about all the worldviews and the competing visions for society, the intentions of the North, the intentions of the South. We're going to be talking about all of this. We still have to go through Lincoln's speeches. We have to go through um, this whole book, The Killer Angels. We have to go through Uncle Tom's cabin. We have to go through the slave narratives. We have a lot to talk about with this um, particular portion of history. But if I wanted to summarize what was going on in the South and in this war, um, this is how I would sum- summarize it in my, in, based on what I know. The South was at first primarily fighting for states' rights and the North was primarily fighting to preserve the union of the states. All right? So the North wanted to preserve the union And the South wanted to be left alone and wanted to maintain their state rights. Unfortunately, one of those state rights was slavery. Okay? The South didn't want the North telling them what to do or how to live. And so the South stopped obeying federal laws. Federal laws that didn't benefit them, you know, they began to, to, to break. Right. <clears throat> so, was the war over slavery? Yes, but it would be more accurate to say the war was over the right of slavery. So, the war was over the issue of slavery, but also over the jurisdiction over the issue of slavery. It's a little complicated. Lincoln put it this way. Abraham Lincoln said this. He said, if I could save the Union without freeing any slave, I would do it. And if I could save it by freeing all the slaves, I would do it. And if I could save the Union by freeing some and leaving others alone, I would also do that. You see, for, for Abraham Lincoln, the point was nationalism. The point was uniting all the states. keeping Turning the United States little U into the United States big U. Preserving the Union. For him, slavery was a secondary issue. For him, slavery was a means to an end. Right. Now, as the war continued, and here's where it gets even more complicated, as the war continued, the motivations and the slogans and the intentions began to change. So many in the north began to be more and more convinced about the uh, cause of the abolitionists. You had books like Uncle Tom's Cabin coming out that made people feel really, you know, atrocious about the behavior and the things that were taking place in slavery, so many of the North began to, to fight to free the slaves. And many in the South began to fight to not free the slaves. So whereas it began a battle of nationalism versus federalism, or states' rights, it slowly morphed into a battle over the issue of slavery. It was kind of the, the main issue in that, in that war, especially as it got toward the end. right. And, and I find that to be providentially interesting. It's like God designed a situation that exposed the secret dark sin of the United States of America, the sin of slavery. He, he coordinated certain events, where, whereas the United States of America um, was forced to, to reckon with the institutional sin of slavery. Right? So let's continue to talk about. Here's all the opinions on slavery that were happening in that day. Also, very complicated. You had the abolitionists who said we should end slavery today. Okay? Abolitionists. Now, that sounds like what we would believe, right? I think so, sure. Depending, obviously, on the definition of slavery and what type of slavery we're talking about, but the chattel slavery of man kidnapping. And, uh, and that we had in the United States, let's end it today, okay? The bond slavery that you have in the Bible um, is not necessarily a sin, okay? But the man kidnapping type of race based slavery that we had here in the United States is a sin. Let's end it today. So that sounds good. But here's the here's the thing: if they were to end slavery today, the entire economy of North Carolina and other states, all the cotton states depended on the slaves to exist. I mean, imagine abolishing computers today. The, all the computers, done. And your electric grid goes out, right? everything, every, Your entire way of life is completely collapsed. You might say, well, you might say something like, yes, slavery is evil. We must put a stop to it. But we need to do it incrementally over a period of time so that we don't send the entire state into absolute poverty, including the slaves. You see what I mean? Mm-hmm. One is more idealistic. The other, perhaps, is more practical. And those are the two. Those, that's called the abolitionists and the incrementalists. Right? It's hard to know which one to do. It's very complicated. <clears throat> When you get involved in sin, trying to undo and unravel the sin is certainly not easy, right? And the farther you go down the line of sin, the more difficult it is to unravel it. End it immediately. Incrementalists ended eventually. <clears throat> Jefferson put it this way. Jefferson said, Slavery is like holding a wolf by its ears. You can neither hold him safely nor let him go safely. Isn't that something? So what's the proper Christian solution? Well, as the Proverbs teach us, don't ever grab a dog by the ears. Right? <laughs> you know, problem solved. If they wouldn't have started the man kidnapping um, during, the, uh, during the humanistic enlightenment era of the 18th century, the 1700s, um, we wouldn't be in this pickle hundred and something years later. But they were. All right? And then, of course, some considered that slavery was a positive good. Some in the South and, of course, some in the North as well. They had slaves in the North as well. <clears throat> but they didn't have cotton in the North. And so slavery wasn't the, the entire economic system of those particular states. You understand what I'm saying? Slavery was an economic necessity in the, in the cotton states. In the North, they had slavery, but it, it was more expendable in the North economically. But some believed it was to be a completely good because they believed Africans were less evolved than Europeans. Of course, this comes from who? Darwin, Darwin who wrote uh, The Origin of the Species and Why Some Species Are More Evolved Than Others, um, right around the same time period as the Civil War. Those ideas were swirling around in Europe as well. Of course, those come from the Greeks as well. Aristotle believed very clearly that some men are born to be slaves. They believed in the superiority of their race. Christians, of course, deny this. Christians, in fact, deny the very category of race because we all come from Adam. You understand what I mean? So <clears throat> a lot of people, a lot of states with a lot of different views all swirling around. Meanwhile, there's slaves in slavery, right? Right? Meanwhile, there's states who don't want to be told what to do. Meanwhile, there's a man named Abraham Lincoln who is clearly of nationalistic sentiments and thinks closer to Napoleon than, than he would to like a, uh, you know, like, uh, you know, a George Washington, right? And he is elected to be president. Okay. So he's elected to be president. Everyone knows what he believes. He signs bills, and the abolitionists attempt to and demand that slavery be done away with quite, quite quickly. Right. Or at least they signal their intentions to do so. And I'm summarizing here, so I'm just I'm doing my best. The cotton states then immediately say, we're out of the union. What's that called when you, when you uh, back out of a union, out of a covenant? Living. It's called secede from the covenant. They believed that they had the right to secede from the covenant because they believed the, uh, the federal government was breaking its covenant. <clears throat> so, okay. So now you have North Carolina and a couple other states, the cotton states, and they're not in the United States anymore because they're afraid that the federal government is going to try and stop slavery immediately, which is going to um, collapse their entire economies. And North Carolina, if I remember correctly, was the richest state in the Union at that time. So we have a lot of greed, a lot of fear, not a lot of faith in God taking place here, right? Right. And we have slaves in slavery. Terrible, right? It's terrible, complicated. So then... What does Lincoln do? Now, remember, y'all know what nationalism is now. You know about the formation of the nation state of France under Napoleon, right? Eventually, the, the, the formation of the nation state of, of Spain and Germany. Abraham Lincoln, he's not going to have these little kingdoms, these little states succeeding from his, his kingdom, his united nations. And so what does he do? What do you think? He invades... To make those cotton states submit and come back into the Union. Now all the other states, the southern states, look around and they don't like this northern aggression. They don't like Lincoln. They don't like his ideologies. They don't like the north. And so now all the other states, guess what they do? They secede too. They choose the side of the cotton states and they all break away and form their own covenant and their own federal constitution, the Articles of Confederation. No, the I can't remember the name off the top of my head, but they have a Confederate Constitution. They form a Confederate government. They they elect a feder a Confederate president. And um, <clears throat> like I said, Appaloosa was the capital of it at some point in time, right? Which is just really strange to think of. <clears throat> mm-hmm. So that's how it all built up, and um, it's going to eventually explode into. Um, quite a bit of death and quite a bit of bloodshed. And Gettysburg, the book you're going to be reading, is the turning point of the war. You could say, some people would say that Pickett's Charge in the middle of the Battle of Gettysburg was that watershed moment where the South went from seeming like they were going to win to the North winning. At the end of the Battle of Gettysburg, it's pretty much over and the southern states are subjected to um, uh, northern rule and dominion, and they are forced into the Union, and that begins sort of the, uh, the, the new era of the United States. All right? All right. Good talk.